I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Looking for a way to support The Dinner Party Show? A percentage of any purchase you make through a buy link on thedinnerpartyshow.com will allow us to keep bringing you the show free of charge. If you're an Amazon customer, head to thedinnerpartyshow.com and click on the Amazon Gold Box located in the lower left-hand corner of every page of our site. Do this, and a percentage of each purchase you make at Amazon during that shopping session will support our continued operation. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And now it's time for another episode of The Dinner Party Show. Hi, I'm Alec Mappa, and you're listening to The Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn. I went to a marvelous party. Don't even know the facts. They go with their gut, and the only thing their gut cares about is money. Christopher? This is only going to work if we speak one at a time. Fine. You first, Eric. Live from the Sunset Strip in beautiful West Hollywood, California, it's the Dinner Party Show. The Internet's first live comedy variety show with your hosts, New York Times best-selling authors, Christopher Rice. No, there's actually a new study that confirms every other child you see on the street is a ghost. <laughs> and Eric Shaw Quinn. I don't want to talk too much, but... Okay, no, no. We're going to take up a collection for the stained glass window. Now we want the dirt. <laughs> Featuring reports from their largely unqualified staff of special correspondents. Sex is like Christmas. It's the not knowing what you're going to get that makes it exciting. New York is a giant trash island infested by has-been theater queens. If we're really serious about cutting federal spending, the biggest waste of public funds I can think of is Congress. Two snaps for Jesus! The Dinner Party Show. Everyone gets served. Tonight's live cast is streaming to you live and for free through thedinnerpartyshow.com and our free mobile app. And now, direct from the kitchen by way of the... Get out of my office! It's your hosts, Christopher and Eric! Good evening, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and you're listening to a special episode of The Dinner Party Show for July 12th, 2015. And tonight we bring you our first TDPS Summer Sampler. That's right. All summer long, we're bringing you exclusive new content, along with highlights from some of our most popular celebrity interviews. And every sampler will have a theme. And what's tonight's theme, Eric Shaw Quinn? Well, I'm glad you asked Christopher Travis Rice. (laughs) Tonight's TDPS Summer Sampler is Out and Proud, which is no surprise given that Christopher and I are both huge, huge, Huge homosexual. Speak for yourself, Miss B. You're like four feet taller than me, asshole. That's not what I meant. Let's not talk about what you really meant. Exactly. Instead, let's talk about self-discovery and self-acceptance, as those are some of the inspiring themes that will be touched on tonight by our luminous guests. Guests like comedian Alec Mappa and his husband, director Jamie Bear. Activist Chaz Bono, Calpurnia Adams, and Dan Savage. Novelists Armistead Maupin and Patricia Nell Warren, and divine drag diva Miss Coco Peru. And, on a more serious note, 
We'll also bring you an exclusive interview with the director of a powerful new documentary called Upstairs Inferno, the story of the largest mass murder of gay people in United States history. Earlier this year, Christopher recorded the narration for this film right here at the Dinner Party Show studios in West Hollywood, and that's when we sat down with the movie's director, Robert L. Camina, to talk about it and how he uncovered this overlooked and tragic chapter in gay American history. That's all being served up tonight on Out and Proud, tonight's TDPS Summer Sampler. Every victory in the fight for marriage equality gets celebrated here at the Dinner Party Show, so... To kick things off tonight, we take you back to a time when the Supreme Court had just struck down the Defense of Marriage Act and dinner party show comedian Alec Mappa and his husband Jamie Bear helped us celebrate. Here they are talking about how they met and how they fell in love. <laughs> Jewish Logan boy teenagers yes, are yeah. always so Jewish pretty. Boy, Jewish boys oh. are my Yeah, weakness. that was my whole dating history at NYU. Oh well, at well, NYU, no. <laughs> Larry Lefkowitz, Seth Cloutman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He wasn't only Jewish. Let's be honest. Uh, at NYU, it was black, Latino. No, black was like high school. I dated all black guys. I, I always, I always believe in dating like, locally. It's like, it's like a like harvest thing. I harvest yeah. locally. <laughs> it's kind of like speaking of harvesting. Within, speaking within, of within harvesting, reach. how did you two meet? You guys are our married right? couple for the night. Wow. Tell us how, which bathhouse you did you ahead. meet in? Oh, Give us okay. some tips. Uh, I've been single spa. forever. <laughs> no, I was an intern. I was the Monica Lewinsky to oh. his Bill Clinton. At was it a cigar thing? He had a solo show. I was the directing intern. I was just out of college. I see. Oh. We really hit it off and liked each other a lot. It was like, like, <laughs> like you make me laugh at first sight. It was love, like at first sight. Because like, I met him and, and he was like, he goes, I'm 24. I live with my grandma in uh, Orange County. And I was like, stop. You had me at grandma. <laughs> <laughs> and then I didn't want to be his boyfriend. Oh. I had issues okay, I was wait, dealing with. Back up, back up. Back up, back up. Wait, so, what were your... Wait. Okay. So we were done with the show, right? We were done with the show and um, about a week passed. You're not telling this right. Okay, go. <laughs> Sorry, so, it's my second I glass of champagne. About married so it, shut it, your it, ass. <laughs> you were you. He was the directing intern, and the director was a real control freak. So he had a whole lot of nothing to do. Except, no, a director except, who was a control freak. So, but all he did was hang out with me. That was his job. And then he hung out with me before the show every single night. And then one night he didn't show up, and I thought I was going to die. And Aww. then I was like, "Where is he?" And then we exchanged phone numbers. And then I was like, "I'm never going to hear from him again." And then. I called him five days later and asked him to see The Rock in The Scorpion King at Grauman's Chinese. Oh, that's so romantic. In a loincloth. Oh, uh, yeah. It he brought us together. Wait, I've seen it twice. You were We're, wearing a loincloth? I was. <laughs> the movies? Uh, yes. They're very li- the dress policies at are very liberal Chinese. across it was the Chinese. Chinese. Yeah. A costume Definitely. showing of, of the scorpion. Chapstick and a loincloth. is where every crackhead in town dresses up like a celebrity. <laughs> Spider-Man. Cash money getting a Saggy butt taken. Spider-Man. So yeah. right? we were just supposed to be, so we got together after that night, and he was just going to be my summer fling. That's all it was ever going to be, because you wrote me this big dramatic letter like, I'm so messed up, I can't date anybody right now. It's not you, it's me. Exactly. It's really me. It's we had a discussion about this at the break. Like he came to me, he like he was like, I have this big confession to make. And I was like, what is it? And you told me. I'm on antidepressants. And I was like, so is everybody I Welcome know. Welcome to Southern California. Yeah. <laughs> That's 
great. Yeah, How the old were you? Would be that you're not. 24. 24. Oh, yeah, you didn't know anything. 75 years ago. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I've wow. aged him. Yeah. He's now older than me. So yeah. naturally you thought this is who I want to split half my income with. No. <laughs> no, I mean even then and then and then we talked about becoming domestic partners and then we got into a huge fight about it because oh. you were like it'll be too much like being married and I don't know if I want to be married and I was like fine. And then that was the Christmas that I went to London. He's holding up his ring hand. And then mm-hmm. I came back from London and he was like, oh, I think we should become domestic partners. <laughs> like, you asked me that at Eatwell yes. in West Hollywood. Yes. Uh, well, I said, do you think we should be domestic partners or something? He was looking around at, at who Eatwell. the other options <laughs> yeah, were listen, at Eatwell. It was listen. like, oh, it's good. Fetal yeah. position on the floor. <laughs> yeah. That's and, who was my and other option. And then I was like, are you proposing to me? Like, I was angry. At, at the well, diner, yeah, yeah, at the diner. Yeah, and he's like, yes. And I was like, we okay. We can go at least to, like, the Labo M. <laughs> yeah. Right? Right. Just right. Down the, the service street. there is terrible. It is. It's is terrible. it? I haven't eaten there in years. Oh, terrible. Worst service, yes. Don't Ugh. go to Ca- Cafe Labo was fun in the 80s, and no. I don't know what happened. Yeah. How does it still exist, still? I don't know. I guess stupid tourists just fall in, like, you know, you. The, like flies falling into Let's a Venus fly trap. <laughs> Yeah. So Disgusting. we got together, and then and then uh, it was eleven. So like years three ago. years later, yeah. we became domestic partners, and then in two thousand six, we said we're not going to wait for the government to say we can get married. We went ahead and had a ceremony in our backyard, which was beautiful. And then in two thousand eight, uh-huh. we did the legal. So thing. you were part of that uh-huh. special subgroup that was yeah. married when yes. nobody else could yeah. get married. Yeah. We yeah. were one of the eighteen thousand couples that had that little window where we got in and were legally married, even though we already had our ceremony and got all our beautiful espresso machines. To hear our complete interview with Alec Mappa and Jamie Bear, download episode 33 from our show archive at thedinnerpartyshow.com or from iTunes. Before gay romances had their own bestseller list on Amazon, being an openly gay writer was considered a political act. Here at The Dinner Party Show, we've been graced by some of the LGBT community's most respected literary pioneers. Up next, Armistead Maupin, Dan Savage, and Patricia Nell Warren talk about what it means to write out and write proud. Here's Armistead. But, you know, I think what we're all saying is that life is not lived in a straight line, which is going to bring me back to your story, because I want to ask you, when you were reassigned to the Associated Press Bureau out in San Francisco, were you saying, I'm going to write a, a serialized novel that will change the world? No way. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, you I was coming out. Product. It was really the other way around. It yeah. was the coming out and the, and the, and the you know, the, the sexual exploration and the... And the fun of having straight people who embraced me for who I was and all of that was there to lift me up to the point where I would write this story, basically. Because mm-hmm. I, I came in 71 and I started uh, Tales of the City in 75. Even earlier than that, I had um, – I was on one of those lists like you always get on, Chris. <laughs> the undateable Back in my list. cute days. <laughs> They put me on the San Francisco Magazine in 73, put me on something called the 10 Sexiest Men in Town oh. because it was not stylish to have bachelors back then because everybody was supposed to be free. So it was the it was the 10 eligible bachelor, bachelor list. Right, right. But I said I wouldn't do it unless I could say that I was gay. So um, uh, I sort of did that in 73 they, and that it was... Did they relent? Did they... No, yeah, it was there. And I got a lot of creepy people trying to track me down. Let me tell you, it was not a... But good for you. <laughs> it was like... Having a Facebook profile before yeah. everyone else was on yeah. Oh, dear God. Yeah. 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 To hear our complete interview with Armistead Maupin, download episode 61 from our show archive at thedinnerpartyshow.com or from iTunes. Here's Dan Savage. We were curious about the moment for you when you went from being 
columnist in Seattle to gay activist on the national stage. Is, was there a moment that well, you I could was pick a, out? I was a gay activist before I started writing Savage Love. Right. Um, you know, I was an act up. I was a gay activist at college and before college many, many years ago. And I, and it occurred to me when I was writing this column when it turned into a real job, because at first it was just me a joke. I was going to write this joke, sex advice column for six months or a year where I treated straight people and straight sex with the same contempt that straight advice columnists had always treated gay people and gay sex with. <laughs> Perfect. But it, then, And I thought it would last like six months or a year, this one note joke. But straight people really liked being treated with contempt. It was a new experience really? for them. And so the column Presaging took off. the whole Fifty Shades of Grey thing. Yeah, right? apparently. apparently. Yeah. <laughs> and it, I, it eventually occurred to me that, oh, I have this much better platform now for the activism I want to do because I've conned all these straight people into reading me because mm-hmm. the column is almost always about straight sex and straight relationships. But then if I pivot and I get on gay marriage or I get on HIV or I get on trans issues or anything else, the straight people read out of habit because it's usually about them. Mm-hmm. And so they'll just read these things that they would never read at any other time. And then every once in a while, I call them my flying monkeys. Sneaky. I can call my readers out and say, you should do this. You should redefine Rick Santorum's last name. You should right. make a video and upload it talking about how <laughs> it got better for you. Favorite. And and I've sort of like, this is my activism now. Right. Like my sex advice column is sort of sneaky activism where I trick straight people into doing things and, and gay people into doing things I want them to do. Right? But it wasn't the plan. It just sort of evolved in that way. Yes. And But there was a point at which, surely, where it became apparent, wow, I'm attracting considerably more attention than the greater Seattle area. Yeah, well, the column, uh, after about... 12 months, other papers started calling asking to pick it up. Mm. So it's been syndicated for 21 years now. Wow. I'm getting letters now from people whose parents were reading my column before they were born. <laughs> oh, no. Who are now old enough to have sex problems of their own, which yeah. is just really depressing. It makes me feel really old. To hear our complete interview with Dan Savage, download episode 33 from our show archive at thedinnerpartyshow.com or from iTunes. And now, Patricia Nell Warren. The frontrunner literally reached across the world and took my hand and said, it's okay, at a time in my life when I didn't have anybody else. I I wish I could remember how I wound up reading that book. I don't know how it wound up in my hands, but somehow there you were. It it changed me and I I think encouraged me to be a writer, that telling a story could make that big a difference in somebody's life. It really, I cannot say enough about how important you are and have been to me. And I I know to a lot of people that are listening tonight and will be listening next week if they download the show. I mean, this is not to make you to your own horn, but this is something that you hear a lot. I mean, there was not another novel out at that time like yours, was there? Well, I was working at the Reader's Digest at that time, and I was in the book department. And my job was to everybody in the book department read hundreds of books a year to help the Reader's Digest decide what they were going to condense. And it was all nonfiction. And, uh, <clears throat> but we were also aware, because we read the trades, of what was coming out in fiction. And it really occurred to me that there were just – there were books about the subject out there, but where were the love stories? Hmm. Right. And they were always kind of grim and ended sadly and, and you know, not to mean they're incredibly talented writers out there, but, but the country had just not been open to hearing 
love stories. And I remember um, Eric Siegel's novel, Love Story. Which was fairly popular back in those fairly days. Fairly popular. <laughs> <laughs> the Reader's Digest condensed it, you know. How is it possible to condense that? It was a leaflet to begin I'll with. I'll tell you what. They condensed it by taking out all the four-letter words. Oh. oh. <laughs> this is a true story. And so How much it weight did that ca- take ca- off the came book? out in the condensed book club. The condensed version and all the wonderful, you know, older women who were kind of the mainstay of the of the Digest readership uh-huh. thought, oh, the Digest is recommending this book. And so they ran out and they bought the regular, the hardcover, the regular edition to give to their children for Christmas. And that was when they became aware of, of the language. <laughs> and a lot of these people wrote in and canceled their subscriptions. Oh, my. Wow. <laughs> Scandal at the Reader's Digest. Now and then the Digest tried to put their toe in the water, you know, and their readers always kind of slapped them down. But that was one of the things that really made me decide to write the story the way it did, along with being involved in athletics in the long-distance running scene and being in the AAU myself and being kind of— I didn't realize that. I didn't know that you actually were a runner. Yeah, I got involved well, in you certainly it shows. <laughs> long distance running was kind of the first of the emerging extreme sports. I mean, people thought you were crazy to want to run in a marathon, and there the, were just the a handful of crazy kind of men that, that did that. Well, twenty six point two miles. Even Prefontaine didn't run that far. Right. You know? He was middle distance, and I got involved in this. And at the time, the issue was around the women's rules. Women were only allowed to run. Two and a half miles oh. at the time, we would fall over dead. You know, or our <laughs> our that, uteruses like would a, fall out on like the road, <laughs> and so we were trying to get the rules changed and get the same distances as the men. I so can't. I was involved in all of the politics, and I was still in the closet myself. At that, I was in my you know late twenties, rounding thirty at that time, and and being there, I began to become aware of that there were people like me who were also still in the closet. And the thought occurred to me at a certain point, gosh, nobody has ever written about this. Mm. No, I mean, the picture of a gay athlete, even now, I think is challenging. We had the the idiot from San, the San Francisco football team being sort of a fool about talking about... Can't have no homos in the locker room. Right. Particularly right, right. In, the, in the team sports where there's that locker room phantom menace that right. they always invoke. Exactly. You know? Because we're right. completely unable to control ourselves and he's so amazing. Yeah, right. Anyway, the point being, like, gay athletes were, even now, are not the most common. It, it isn't something that, that people think of. No, it, it, it's beginning to happen. I mean, it's little well, it's obviously little been happening little, right along. Little Hello. by little. It, you know, I mean, I think we'll get there. The, the tough thing has been team sports mm. yeah, mm-hmm. because you have uh, the pressures of the, uh, the owners, the team owners, the corporate sponsors, the fans, the everybody, you know, and, and uh, just not, not to mention your teammates and, and about anything. And that silly belief that so long informed the don't ask, don't tell mentality of that somehow it would what, – what's the – the, 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 the term the military used to say the group order. Or unit, unit, unit morale. Cohesion. Unit cohesion. Unit cohesion. Unit cohesion. Unit morale. I think it's that same sort of insane pro- 
perception that somehow knowing that one of your teammates on your football team is gay would prevent you from playing football as well. Exactly. That's the delusional part for Mr. Scott well, Carr. I have to say, I think that what what is so offensive about that is that it posits one of two ridiculous scenarios. One, that they're going to not take no for an answer and literally force themselves on you in the locker room. And the other <laughs> is that you, as a supposedly heterosexual person, won't be able to resist the temptation of someone of the same gender who you know to be homosexual right. in your vicinity. So what does that say? One, that all gay people are rapists. Or two, that you're bisexual and need to talk to somebody mm-hmm. about it. Or maybe just gay. <laughs> maybe <laughs> so. Or, or that you as a heterosexual are so easily tempted that you could be uh, you could be drawn to abandon your yes. positioning as a heterosexual. Well, I think all of that goes back to the notion that it's a choice. Right. You know, I always say to people, mm-hmm. you know, and when did you decide to be heterosexual? Right. Mm-hmm. You know, like – I. It isn't like I sat down and thought one day, hmm, I wonder what – well, let's look at the options. Let's get the literature and leaf mm-hmm. through and see which is the most – nobody – actually, it's not a choice. In fact, for the majority of people, if it were a choice, they would have chosen the far more easier and acceptable mm-hmm. option. Certainly, <laughs> if I was ba- making the choice based on convenience. Right. To hear our complete interview with Patricia Nell Warren, download episode 15 from our show archive at thedinnerpartyshow.com. Or from iTunes. Tired of dining alone? Enjoy the dinner party show with friends. Like us on Facebook and become one of our party people. Then, during our live shows on Sundays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, you can join the conversation and post questions for Christopher, Eric, and their guests. During the week, drop in for tasty side dishes, show updates, and fun with the other party people. The Dinner Party Show. You are the life of our party. The Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn. Good taste, gone bad. Welcome back to The Dinner Party Show. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and you're listening to Out and Proud, our first TDPS summer sampler. Caitlyn Jenner's landmark interview and Laverne Cox's appearance on the cover of Time magazine were just two of the many considerable strides made by the transgender community in the past few years. Here at the Dinner Party Show, we've been honored to host two of that community's leading activists. Up next, Chaz Bono and Calpurnia Adams. Here's Chaz. When I was, I guess, about 30 or 31, I was at a... a you know, party at, and there was a, a lot of lesbians. It, you know, it was basically a, a large lesbian barbecue. And I remember... Not that they were barbecuing lesbians. No, they weren't barbecuing <laughs> lesbians. Good. Just wanted just, to clear that you know, up. one of those lesbian barbecues that, you know, yeah, that they I have. Know. I've been. And, right. Yeah, um, I've been as well. I've been the token gay man. Right. Them. Yeah. And so, and, you know, I think all of the major, you know, lesbian iconic groups were represented mm-hmm. um you know you had your kind of your sporty your lipstick your kind of crunchy granola uh-huh. uh and i remember kind of sitting sitting back and listening in on different conversations of people that day and I, and i think that i used to do that a lot because i never felt very comfortable in participating before and uh and it struck me that day that all of these women kind of regardless of how they uh, presented themselves all had a strong female identity and felt very comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I realized that 
that day that, you know, that wasn't me ever. Hmm. And so that was the first time I started to think that. You know, I think I, I when I was very young, um, I just assumed that there were other les- lesbians, in quotes, I'm doing the finger quotes. Um, <laughs> for those of you at home. I do that all the yes. time on the show. I do air quotes um, and realize no one's seeing yeah. them. So I assumed that there were other lesbians who felt the same way that I did, which was that I felt like a man. I wished that I was a man, but I wasn't, so I'd make the best out of it. Mm-hmm. And that day, I realized that that wasn't the definition of any type of lesbian. It multiplies it to the 10th power for you. You literally grew up in front of the camera. Mm-hmm. Like you've literally grown up on in public your whole life. Yeah. Well, then, yeah. And I mean, I think then, you know, once I, I was really comfortable with it, um, and ready to do it and really feeling like, okay, this is absolutely, you know, the right thing to do and this is the time to do it, then it, it it's then, you know, that kind of hit me and it started to feel like almost meant to be because I, I, I was in a unique position where people, you know, have known me all my life publicly Truly. and, you know, have a certain amount of comfort with me. And, you know, that put me in a situation to reach people that others, you know, might not be able to. So suddenly it kind of felt like, okay, this is this was what was supposed to happen. And you've handled it with such grace. Yeah, Uh, your bravery and specifically Dancing with the Stars. And we had a listener, one of our party people on Facebook, Amy Eggers, writes this. It's more of of an observation about your process. It saddens me that because of his parents' fame, he was unable to have the same respect of privacy while making going through a monumental decision that other transgender people had. That being said, I give him all the respect for the class and dignity he showed while sharing his journey best of luck was it something you wanted to be private or or was it important to you to Um, be public about it well no i think that if i had had my choice i I would have liked to have done it privately and i think if i had that you know opportunity i would have done it many years earlier Mm. um you know that was the thing that really took a long time to get over and you know i mean i i had realized that i was transgender almost 10 years before I transitioned. Wow. And so, you know, there was getting past all the kind of usual issues that I think, you know, most transgender people go through of, you know, worrying about their family and friends rejecting them and job and that kind of stuff. But, you know, for me, there was that added thing of, you know, everybody knowing. And, um and that one really took a long time to get comfortable with. And um, so, yeah, I, I probably would have done it at least a good five years you know, earlier. To hear our complete interview with Chaz Bono, download episode 32 from our show archive at thedinnerpartyshow.com or on iTunes. And now, Calpurnia Adams with a special appearance by Alec Mappa. Is your life a surprise to you? Like, is this really where you expected that things would go when you made the choices that you've made? I mean, you were in the Marine Corps. Yeah, I was a combat medic uh, in the Navy with the Marines. I'm showgirl. You know, I'm also a certified Apple iOS developer and computer programmer. So, uh, Are you really? Yeah. Really? And we might actually call you for she's, technical. She's like right? MacGyver. It's Maybe not, you can um, fix my iPad. Yeah, it hasn't I, worked since the last update. I Tell can. people how to kill people by pulling their um, throat out. <laughs> you know. 
I, I'm going to want to talk to legal. No, 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 okay. no, no. You no. tell no. me this one time. I, Alec loves my old story. You know, yeah. when I was in basic training, then after that I went through my medical training, and then I went to a sort of a Marine Corps secondary boot camp mixed with intensive medical training Mm -hmm. where they have things like goat lab where you actually um you know insert an intravenous catheter into a living goat nice you know know, like you do recalled my childhood sacrifices in a southern (laughs) fundamentalist cult but you should laugh i don't want to offend goats (laughs) we'll we'll get the the goat hate mail is rolling in now yes no i'm I'm from the country honey i i will literally hack an animal to death and cook it for dinner but but this is why you should stand next to calpurnia adams late night when you're like withdrawing money from an atm because well you reach and grab their voice fox if you can you know and crush it Crush it. I love your crush delicate ladylike okay. way in which and we're then, telling this and story. And then you yank it is the hard part. You, you can get your fingers around behind it. It's just a little tube. And then if you can get your fingers behind it, you crush and yank. And it's kind of hard to get in there, but if you can. Christopher, you, you can. should see the so expression like on your face right now. I'm seeing a one-woman show called Clutch and Grab. <laughs> right. About, about your military Actually, background. It could be a two-woman show. One's Clutch and yeah. one's Grab. Are you know, oh, yeah, absolutely. Or you have a puppet that you do the Clutch and Grab on. It's just yeah. cartilage, folks. You just reach it's, in, you it's grab, just cartilage. you pull it out. Yeah, absolutely. It, yeah. absolutely. Well, that's an important skill to have. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. really helpful. What kind of roles are being offered to trans actors and actresses right now? Well, Is now, it actual transgender right, characters? With, the, with like, uh, it's, it's blowing Laverne, up right? with yeah, Laverne Cox Laverne and Cox Orange Is the New Black. On, yeah, she's, she's got a new film coming out, doesn't she? A, yeah, a, a, a documentary. Yeah, talking about trans issues. It's really blowing up in the last few years, which is... Thanks to you. Well, why you should, like, fly a banner across, you know, (laughs) L.A. to say, you're welcome. Like, you've wound up being a real uh, trendsetter and an activist. Uh And I don't know that... Did you just plan to have an ordinary life and you you wound up being an activist sort of by accident? Yeah, I I don't know. If I hadn't been trans, if I had just been born a girl without having to transition into it, I was born in Nashville. You know, super conservative family, discouraged education, everything. I would have, I would have probably gotten pregnant out of high school, and and you know, sort of descended into the same alcoholism and despair that I'm in now, but without all the cool <laughs> friends. But, cool but, friends yeah. but not child, in Los Angeles, not in Hollywood, yeah, not Los right. Angeles. Yes, that's the so. important thing. It's location, location, location. <laughs> and, and, it has been a surprise, though. You know, we when, had a dinner party recently with her mother. Wow. Yeah, at our house. Oh, and is she like that's an outfest film in the making? Uh, uh, it, yeah. it was. No, yeah. I I tell you, growing up, she was a little bit the mom from Carrie, a little bit Aunt B. It was really difficult. Your I'm, dirty pillars are showing. Yeah, yeah, I I can't. I mean, we weren't allowed to go to movies, so I never saw ET or Disney. We couldn't listen to modern music, so I went through the eighties. Wow, missed the entire eighties music scene, everything. So, you know, but uh, I that's it. a blessing. And then flash forward, she's at, at my house in the backyard, surrounded by every drag queen and showgirl. Yeah, twenty five years and later, gay activist in Los Angeles. First yeah. time we had ever spent more than an hour or two in each other's company in at a time. So that's really. And, yeah, that's Alec amazing. Was, Alec was my, you know, baptism into the gay world for mom. Wow. How you like that? Baptism How of fire. She, right? At she least. was great. She was very, very sweet. She's, ad- she's advanced a lot. She she's sent us a down. thank you note. Yeah. yeah. 
To hear our complete interview with Calpurnia Adams and Alec Mappa, download episode 90 from our show archive at thedinnerpartyshow.com or from iTunes. Earlier this year, Christopher recorded the narration for a powerful documentary about the largest mass murder of gay people in the history of the United States. Upstairs Inferno had its sold-out world premiere just this past June, and the narration was recorded here at the Dinner Party Show studios in West Hollywood. Here's our brand-new, exclusive interview with the film's director, Robert L. Camino. So, Robert Camino, we have been in the Dinner Party Show studio all day recording the narration for your documentary, Upstairs and Inferno. And I've been shopping. And Eric Shawquin has been shopping and on his sofa watching Netflix. That's right. I, I, I finished uh, finished viewing uh, Kimmy Schmidt. Oh, okay. Excellent. Well, you had jury duty this week, right? Uh, I'm supposed to. We'll see. Okay. Okay. So the studio was freed up for Robert to fly in from Dallas and for us to do to do the narration for your documentary. Um you, we met last night, too, and had dinner, and you said that there were a lot of aha moments that brought you to this subject. Your previous documentary was called Raid at the Rainbow Lounge, correct? That's it correct. Was, it was about um, a police raid of a gay bar in Fort Worth, Texas, that was pretty recent and pretty controversial. Well, 2009, yes. Okay. And it happened oh, on God. the It happened on the 40th anniversary of the Stonewall raid. That's wow. true. Yeah. And, it, and the, the How sensitive. The <laughs> parallels were haunting. People were injured. Multiple people were arrested. There were sorted allegations. It was pretty controversial. So that what would be the motivation for that sort of thing in this in this day and age? I, I don't consider 2009 that long ago. Yeah, no, I mean it really wasn't. They claim it was a routine bar check. Mm. And so a lot of controversy. What were they checking for? <laughs> uh, public intoxication. <laughs> well, I would think bars would be the place that yeah. you find that. Yeah, and the, the bar had not even been open two weeks. So there was a huge controversy out of that. But in the wake of that raid, Fort Worth became a leader in LGBT equality. Oh, they, God. They used it as a learning experience. The The police department had increased its sensitivity training. The city did, too. They bought a calendar. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, they, <laughs> a gay calendar, gay events in history right? that you don't want to screw With up. A big circle around the Stonewall <laughs> anniversary, because for fuck's sake. <laughs> they couldn't have picked a better or worse, depending on the pr- pr- yeah. You know, like, perspective. I, I uh, think it would be to, yeah, to landmark it. in gay rights for Texas. So yeah. it got a lot of publicity. And and so I decided to do a film on it because I knew people that were there. I was actually invited to a birthday party there that night, but I stayed in Dallas. And so I'm like, I don't know what's going on with this raid, but I, I need to capture it on film. I thought it'd make a great short film. And then uh, a couple of years later, it's a two, you know two hour, almost two hour movie. Right. But we followed it from the beginning to the end. We were in the eye of the storm, didn't know exactly where the story was going to go. But once we finished the film, we screened it at film festivals. We screened it at universities. We used it as as a, as a tool, and the Department of Justice used it. Uh, we, oh, we wow. screened That's impressive. It at, we screened it at the Library of Congress last fall mm-hmm. and so it's enlightenment through entertainment sure and we treated the story with respect we tried to tell a very fair story from both sides the police chief was even part of it mm. and so with this story with the upstairs lounge fire yeah, story well let's talk about yeah how did you get from incident. something that happened literally kind of right down the street from you to this is a 40 year old mass murder well 42 now 42 year old mass yeah. murder in the city oh, of new God. orleans 
Um, it is remains the largest mass murder in New Orleans history. In is U.S. That, history. In U.S. history. Yeah. My God. The largest gay mass murder in U.S. Okay, history. Okay, the largest gay mass murder, right. Yeah. And it remains the deadliest fire in New Orleans history? Yes, and okay. that even includes the Great Fire, I think of 1788 in, in, wow. in the, New Orleans that burnt most of the city down. Burnt most of the French yeah, Quarter, I'm, right. Yeah. I'm, the reason that most of the French Quarter is Spanish, I think, is that fire. The things that we associate with the French Quarter are actually elements of Spanish architecture. That's one of the first things they taught me in school. What about you, Eric Quinn? Did they teach you that up in Natchitoches, Louisiana? No, they were just giving us instructions on how to fry meat pies. Be a steel magnolia. Yeah, that was pretty much it. it yeah. they didn't, we, didn't, we didn't really... The only history lesson we ever had was once a year they would drive us to the movie theater and show us Gone with the Wind. <laughs> how Southern. That, that was our history through <laughs> entertainment. <laughs> Fiddle-dee-dee. Um, they call it. Yes, that's, that's, that's what they call yeah. it. Yeah. Now, the real breakthrough in Natchitoches was when they took down the um, the statue of the good darky tips his hat, oh, which was downtown um, in the public square. And I remember them carting it away and being like, uh, really? For real? That was actually here? <laughs> yes, it was. Yeah, it was like having a lawn jockey on the state flag. Right. You know, it was like, oh my God, the most racist thing ever. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, uh, but Eric, I want to ask you, I had never heard of this case. I grew up in New Honestly, Orleans. Honestly, no. I, yeah. I was probably, when, what year did it take place? 1973. Okay, so I was just out of Louisiana, but not long, and maybe still there. No, I think we left in... 70. I think I left in 70. So I, I don't know that at that age I would have been paying attention right, right. to anything of the sort. But honestly, that's a huge, you know, that's a lot of dead people not, for it not to have been national news. Was right. it at the time? Or? No, not really. It only made the, the headlines for just a couple of days. And the press was very insensitive in its coverage of that, mm-hmm. too. Um, Unbelievable. Yeah. Like, and, they're still talking about that the shirtwaist fire that happened in uh, the Flatiron District yeah. of New York. And it's been, what, 150 years? It, is, it was pretty tragic. The mayor really was hands-off. Mayor uh, Moon Landrew was very mm-hmm. hands-off. Governor Edwin Edwards was very hands-off. Um, there were no local radio hosts were saying, will they bury them in fruit jars? Yeah. I we, mean, and that was okay. Wow. Yeah. yeah. There, there, was a, there was a joke that went around, what do you bury the ashes of them in? Fruit jars or something yeah. to that effect. Um, um, a lot of what we did today for the documentary was recording how no church in the area would have their memorial service. That There was an Episcopal church that had a brief sort of preliminary service for the grieving, and once word got out that they had done it, th- that was shut down. They couldn't have it. The The Catholic church wouldn't touch it. And it, there was know. a church meeting happening, a, an MCC church meeting happening there, right? Well, they met at the upstairs lounge for a little while, but they had already moved to another space by, by the I time see. of the fire. But a tradition was after church, they would go to the beer bus at the upstairs lounge. And so after church on June 24th, 1973, which happens to be Gay Pride Day, right? they went to um, the upstairs and then the fire happened. So um, 32 people died. Uh, a third of the MCC congregation perished in that fire. Oh, God. Uh, Did any sense of like responsibility or was there any investigation on? Do they have any idea? There was an investigation. You know, there. <laughs> there's you're smiling. Like, oh, should we do air quotes? We're doing air quotes in the studio around investigation. There, there, there's, uh, 
you know, whether or not they the police did a real thorough investigation, it depends on who you talk to. The police stopped investigating very shortly after the fire. The uh, fire department did a, a more thorough investigation. Uh, they kept it open for a few years, but the police pretty much dismissed it after a little while. But it was arson. That much is clear. At first, they didn't want to admit it, but they later determined it as arson. Like yes. a firebomb or like- can of lighter fluid. Uh, at the base of the stairway that led up to the lounge. I know because I just read all this <laughs> very tragic narration, well written, but very, very upsetting. They found a can of lighter fluid at the base of the stairs, and this was pre, uh, I want to say 19, this was 1973, and it was before flammability standards for carpet were put into effect, so the carpet was just super flammable and right. it went that up like MGM a MGM hotel fire uh-huh. happened in Las during Vegas. That, yeah. that was when they really cracked down on the whole carpet being yeah. made out of, you know, highly <laughs> whatever uh, burns. charcoal briquettes yeah. Yeah. or whatever. Like, uh, yeah. yeah, I remember that horrible So fire. that there was that, but um, there was a suspect. Is that correct? There was a number one suspect. There were several suspects to begin with, but they started narrowing down on, on one. Uh, he was a 26-year-old. His name was Roger Dale Nunez. He was an alleged hustler. He had been in the bar earlier in the evening and had an altercation with a, a regular uh-huh. And when the guy, uh, they, they had a confrontation, uh, the regular knocked Roger Nunez in the face, fracturing his jaw, we actually mm. found out. And when Roger was on the floor, looked up at, at Michael Scarborough, the, the regular, he says, I'm going to burn you out. And then he was escorted out of the bar. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's a really specific threat. Yeah, <laughs> you know? it is a specific threat. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. The internet is full of people talking about stuff they hate. So on the dinnerpartyshow.com, we've decided to launch a new feature that's all about stuff we love. That's right. It's called Christopher and Eric's Favorites. Each month, we'll recommend a variety of products we just can't live without so that you can enjoy them, too. You can visit Christopher and Eric's favorites at thedinnerpartyshow.com, and that's where you can also sign up for our newsletter and be the first to know when new favorites are added to the site. And remember, if you use any of the buy links on thedinnerpartyshow.com, a percentage of your purchase will help support the operation of the show. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Out and Proud, a TDPS summer sampler, continues now with the second half of our exclusive all-new interview with Robert L. Kamina, the director of a powerful new documentary called Upstairs Inferno. I think when people first hear about your documentary, they're going to react to it like this is some the great unsolved hate crime, mm-hmm. when the reality is the hate crime sort of took place subsequently. You talk a lot about how... Uh, the unidentified victims, they wouldn't release them to the MCC church who wanted to give them dignified, proper burials. And so they were buried, we really don't know where. I mean, we were talking about it still. We don't know where they're buried. They're buried in unmarked graves. They could have had other bodies buried on top of them. You know, it was, they they were buried as indigents. That was the classification. Correct. Three people were never identified. And, and I, Unbelievable. I, yeah, I, I, I know it's a different day and a different time, but that's just, I mean, I, you know, I'm looking at what just happened with passing a, a law that would make it possible to refuse to bake a cake for somebody. Right. There was an international, certainly a national outcry mm-hmm. about the, the situation. And this trailed out of the news in two days. I've never really heard of it prior to, you know, hearing about your project. And 
I, I just, unbelievable. It's it's so much is. I mean, it get, it's heartening to know that this much has changed, but it's still an unbelievable and unaddressed tragedy. It was, especially before the 40th anniversary of the fire. Very few people wanted to talk about it. Survivors, uh, it was too painful. It was a it was a secret. You know, mm-hmm. in New Orleans, uh, people who live there, like yourself. It was Chris. a secret, but we talked about wh- one of the reasons we think it's a secret is everyone who knew the story died in the 80s. Well, a lot it's of people did. one of those did. stories yeah. that got lost, yeah. or largely lost, because by the time I was going out to the gay bars in the French Quarter at 18, there weren't a lot of people from that generation left. I can mm-hmm. maybe one or two, you know, who would have been around in the era of the upstairs lounge. But, you know, to your point about the hate crime, a lot of people feel or they, they read the headlines on social media uh, think that this this was a hate crime. Mm-hmm. First of all, that term didn't exist right. in the 70s. That's a no. fairly common yeah, term no. or fairly recent Not term. But one could argue that the true hate crime was the way that the church reacted or didn't react. Mm-hmm. They did not want to host funerals for the gay victims because right. they were gay. Families did not want to claim their, their loved ones' bodies because they were gay. Right. The city's lack of compassion, the jokes, mm-hmm. that all combined is the hate crime. Right, yeah. So while the act itself of torching the fire isn't necessarily a, a hate crime under modern definition. Right, right. Whoever did the fire, I'm, I'm, I don't want to say Roger did it definitively because we don't know. So I, 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 And there was never any, like, was he ever, so there was no sort of trial or any. There was never enough evidence to charge him. That's why I'm, I, I fall short of, of, mm-hmm. of just saying Is he saying still him. around or is he gone too? Or He's gone too. He committed suicide about a year after the uh, fire. Oh, well, there's uh, nothing he, suspicious there. Well, true. Uh, but he had a brain tumor mm-hmm. and he experienced uh, seizures quite often. And so they don't know. I mean, there's, there's a theory that he committed suicide because of the brain tumor. He could have committed suicide because of the guilt. There was, he could have committed suicide out of self-loathing and self, because there was a lot of self-hatred. In 73 was the year that the AMA first said that it wasn't a mental illness. That right. The right. Beginning, the prior beginning. to 73, you could be put in a mental mm-hmm. institution for the rest of your life just for being gay. Right. right. That was a real fresh uh, uh, ruling. And it really hadn't made it down to the South yet. <laughs> yeah. It, it, may, it may not have yet in the South <laughs> so, in many areas. So we don't know why Roger committed suicide. Yeah. I mean, it's no one's position to actually say why. But no one was ever charged with the crime. But he – all the circumstantial evidence points to the fact that he did it. Okay. And the, the the real crime here seems to have been the the aftermath, the, the absence mm-hmm. of response from the city and officials and certainly church leaders. Jesus yeah, and, and God. You said to me the other day, Robert, and I think it was it's well said, is that people think New Orleans is this sort of wildly eccentric liberal enclave. And it is eccentric in many ways. <laughs> but it's part, yeah. also got aspects of it that are very socially conservative. And I was very familiar with those growing up. And there was a sense, as we were going out to those bars, even in 1998 and 1999, that we were not entirely safe. A good friend of mine was so violently gay-bashed several Mm. blocks from one of the bars, he was gay-baited. They sent a cute one in to seduce him, and he left with the guy, and then the gang descended. His jaw was wired shut for for months. Uh, Another guy walked into a popular drag queen bar, and pulled a pin out of a grenade and handed it to a drag queen and drew a gun on her and said, you know, I'll shoot you if you put the pin back in. Just, there was all sorts of 
of uh, menacing things happening that reminded us that the French Quarter was an island and not a nation. You know, and I think a lot of people, gay people in particular, who grew up in the Deep South, feel that way about their cities. They feel that way about Atlanta. They feel that way about other other cities like cities in Texas, like Dallas and Houston. That you may have your gay neighborhood, but just outside the borders, it yeah. was it was not. You know, Los Angeles has its moments. I don't we want to let us have off that, the hook either. We had that feeling when they passed Prop Eight. Yes, oh, yeah, like it imagine. was like it was a sudden realization of oh my god. Am I not even safe in California? Are there right. people in California who hate me so much mm-hmm. that they want to? like take away my civil rights my god yeah my neighbors at the grocery store yeah i remember right. you saying just, that you didn't want to go to the grocery store because you didn't know who they had voted for i didn't know who was around it. me yeah. i just i totally took away my sense of security yeah absolutely but so there was a book that was written about this uh recently is that correct well there was a book that was written it was started as a thesis i believe okay back in the 90s it was uh johnny townsend right he did a lot of research he tracked down, and I admire him for this, you know, real old school style because it was 90s. He picked up the phone book and just started cold calling people, right. trying to locate relatives, trying to locate survivors. He wrote letters um, just inquiring about, you know, people involved with the upstairs on fire. Right. And he wanted to give a, a broader picture to this tragedy, not just the exposition of facts. Mm-hmm. He wanted people to get to know the people that were in the bar. Sure. And so he wrote a book. Uh, called uh, Let the Faggots Burn. Wow. It was recently, I think the past couple of years, published and Mm -hmm. and released. But had he not done some of those interviews, a lot of the stories would have been lost because they're they're gone. A lot of the insight... To what the bar was like, you know, the atmosphere, all all that makes this, you know, this bar charming and unique would have been lost without his research. And so anybody who has told the story about the upstairs lounge right. fire owes a great deal of credit to Johnny. And he's mm-hmm. in he's in the movie. Good. Yeah. Good. Excellent. It's wonderful. wonderful. Well, Robert, thank you very much, and thank you for asking me to be part of this. I project. am so p- glad that yeah. you are part of that uh, part of Upstairs Inferno. I'm I'm looking forward to. It's release. Yeah, so. absolutely. And we are going to hold this interview until you release the movie <laughs> or until you give us permission to air this interview. But we're obviously we're recording this in the in the month of uh, chilly April here in yeah. Los Angeles. But we're going to wait and air it later so that we can drive all of our party people and our listeners to support you online and anywhere else the movie might be available. If I could just do that bit of self-promotion. Yes, yes go right yes. ahead. I invite people to go to www.upstairsinferno.com. Sign up for the newsletter for updates. Also check us out on Facebook, mm-hmm. Upstairs Inferno, the documentary. And while you're at it, go to Raid of the Rainbow Lounge. Uh, yes. <laughs> Facebook page or RaidoftheRainbowLounge.com. We'll, we'll, so, we'll, so, we'll get all of those links uh, up yes, on social yes, media so, and at the dinner party show. Well, I really appreciate, appreciate you guys having me here tonight. Absolutely. Good luck with your project. Thank Thanks. you. Robert. Good for you. The Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn, bringing you interviews with some of the hottest celebrities who made the mistake of taking Christopher and Eric's call. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And this Sunday, July 19th, The Dinner Party Show is all about our hometown and the business we call show. It's the Hollywood not-so-confidential edition of our TDPS Summer Sampler Series, featuring a mix of exclusive all-new content and highlights from the people in the know. This Sunday's sampler offers up behind-the-scenes stories about life in Hollywood from our three years of gossiping with amazing guests like Barrett Foa, star of CBS's hit 
TV series NCIS Los Angeles. Brian Fuller, creator of Pushing Daisies, Dead Like Me, and Hannibal. Executive producer Chad Hodge and best-selling author Blake Crouch, co-creators of the hit Fox series Wayward Pines. Dinner party show favorites like author and television Jill of All Trades, Marsha Clark, resident expert writer-slash-producer Jack Morrissey, and Daily Variety deputy editor Ted Johnson. And we've got an exclusive all-new interview with Jackie Collins, taking us behind the scenes of the upcoming third installment of the Hollywood Horror Summer Camp Fest and her role in front of the camera. Sharknado 3, oh hell no. It's Jackie Collins versus the Sharknado and three years of Hollywood gossip this Sunday, July 19th at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Hollywood Not-So-Confidential edition of our special TDPS Summer Sampler Series. It's all right here at thedinnerpartyshow.com. The Dinner Party Show, a new live cast, begins airing every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific at thedinnerpartyshow.com or through our free mobile app. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, where all of our shows are available for free anytime you want to listen. The Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn. Everyone gets served. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and welcome back to Out and Proud, a TDPS summer sampler. And tonight we end with one of our favorite and most popular guests, drag diva Miss Coco Peru. Here's Coco. So the show that you're going to do this summer is called She's Got Balls. Mm -hmm. Tell us about it. I just, I did it here uh, in Los Angeles, and then I traveled a bit with it before Spain, and it's my brand new show, and it's all about... um, uh, it's. I feel like it's my sex positive show where it's just mm. a lot of funny stories. But you know, with my shows, there's always a point. And um, mm-hmm. well, one of my favorite Coco quotes is, uh, "If you've got the balls to change yourself, you've got the balls to change the world." Yeah, is like that... that's the secret drag queens have is if you have cool. the power to change. I've always, if you're your, man enough to wear a dress down the street, by God, you got you got to have a big hefty pair. Yeah, I swear to God. When I lived in New York and I used to ride the subway in full drag, you know, my friends were like, "You ride the subway in drag?" I'm like, "Oh yeah, no one bothers me." Mm. If I went on the train with just the makeup on. I would be called names. Hmm. But there was something about going all the way to that edge that I think people are just instinctively wired to respect. The that the courage that it takes. They, yeah. they they even if they think you're crazy and you're weird, it's either that or they're thinking you're packing a pistol in your small handbag. But uh, either way works. Right. They just kept it, as long as it works. Yeah. As long as it works. Is it, maybe they think you have experience defending yourself in those situations. If you're in the habit of doing it, you know how to handle yourself. Exactly. Right. Like that's what the pistol. A three-inch heel. Right. <laughs> I don't know. I, it's such an interesting way to approach the world. I did drag one time because I got dared into it, and it was one of those experiences where it was so like I had great respect. Just the just the hassle of it. Well, it's it. a lot of work. Oh yeah. my god! And and then uh, after eight hours of it, I looked like Barbara Bush's plain yeah, sister. Yeah, and, and like, then when it starts sliding, <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. Was, well, that's yeah. what we're talking about. Before I, I, it's like, I people will I have old photos and and people go, oh, you look so beautiful in 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 this photo, and I go, you know, I always feel like now that I'm older, I have to tell them that was not photoshopped. That's the right. way I really, really looked back right. then. And I so didn't appreciate it, you know. Right. Well, I'd look in the you, mirror and see all the faults I'm back sitting then. across from Coco Peru, and Coco Peru still looks pretty terrific. She's, those she's those still beautiful got it, eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Those beautiful eyes. My yeah. God, those beautiful Tessie Technicolor with the well, hair and the eyes. We grew, and the, I grew
grew up in the Bronx, as I said, in my family, in our small neighborhood, we were known for our eyes. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. Yes. Uh, definitely. Yeah. They're still working for is you. There, is there a certain calculus to it where you can look at somebody who's maybe a beautiful person in their, in their, their drag of origin and you think you would not work as a drag queen? Like, can you just look at somebody's face and their features and say it would that would go away? Or is there always a way to sort of make the transition? Oh, I th- no, there's there's really hideous, hideous drag. Oh, oh my <laughs> but god! But I yes. can see, I can still find a way to celebrate even hideous drag because right. I think anytime someone uh, dresses up, or you know, if a woman decides to dress like a man, anytime yeah. someone steps outside that box, that alone for me is a reason to celebrate it, even right. if it's just a mess, you yeah. know. And now. Uh, there are like Dina Martinez, a drag queen who who's who's just grotesque, mm. and that's you know that, that there's something there to celebrate. As that's well. yeah. the thing. Yeah. Is oh, there God. bad drag? Drag with a beard. I just love drag. Yeah, with a beard. that's what it's I mean. So like cracks there's me sisters up. of perpetual indulgence. Oh my God, with the full on beards and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I love that. So. Is it a form of rebellion, or is that too glib? I guess on some level it's a form of rebellion, but for me it wasn't about rebellion. For me it was about uh, healing mm-hmm. and embracing all that I had been taught to reject about right. myself growing up. Right, right. Even throughout college, I went to school for theater and was told to butch up. Right. I was too effeminate. Right. And it, that constantly mode. negative yeah. feedback about that stuff. So that I was just always full of shame. Right. And as a young kid, up and through puberty, always mistaken for a girl, mm. which is part Me of my too. new show. Me which too. is like, yeah. I could wear boy clothes, have a boy haircut, and they'd still go, what's your daughter's name? You know, in front yeah. of my parents. Would be like, oh, God. So... um <laughs> For that reason, you were beautiful. Yeah, exactly. But drag for me was a way to uh, embrace, embrace that, right? And and to sort of just, huh. I guess, in the rebellious way, say, "Fuck you! This is right. who yeah. I am. This, this is, is who I right. enjoy to be. I want to express myself." I remember having to go through this cosmetic overhaul when we left uh, San Francisco, where I was born, and we moved to the Deep South. And I had this long hair, and I, like you, I was routinely mistaken for a girl. And I would wear long, baggy sweaters with Disney characters on them. And I would just, because I was coming from this really liberal, hippie environment. And then I remember how not okay that was when we got to New Orleans, and I had to get the haircut and the rat tail and the clothes. I, I, I was dressed in what I wear today, you know, polo shirt. Right. Jeans. That's it. The and in uniform. a way, that was drag. Yeah. I mean, right. that was, was you new, having totally. to create yeah. a new character. And 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 for me, uh, putting on the clothes when I first started taught me a wonderful lesson about life in general that crosses gender borders and and you know everything that I think every human being should understand is that a lot of people fall into role playing here. Right. Of uh, this is my life. I'm 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 a father. I'm a mother. I'm this. I'm that. And you have all these roles. And they forget that you're actually here to create who you want to be. Right. And that is such a, like anything's possible. Right. And drag taught me that again, that I am I am the one that has to create the life that I want and who I want to be and how I want people to perceive me when I walk in the room. Right. And and it, it was a yeah. wonderful, liberating experience. So right. in that way, it, it's if that's rebellious, then I guess it is. Well, but it's revolutionary. It, I mean, for me, it was just like... It, and I mean it in the most positive yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, no, rebellion, I do. So you know, like, yeah. It was a rebellion, but on another level, it was just really... Um, 
it, it, it was it was for me to heal. It was, for it was celebration. Yeah. Celebration. Yeah, yeah, celebration. yeah, that's a lovely yeah. way. Because to it's 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 always been inspiring to watch the way drag performances bring gay and straight audiences together. Yeah. And I think it's because of what you're describing. It is that that inspirational message of self creation yeah. and creating what is authentic to yourself. To hear our complete interview with Coco Peru, download episode 40 from our show archive at thedinnerpartyshow.com or from iTunes. Well, that does it for us here tonight on our first ever TDPS Summer Sampler. We hope we left you feeling out and proud. Join us next week for an all-new Summer Sampler featuring an exclusive all-new interview with novelist Jackie Collins about her upcoming cameo in, wait for it, Sharknado 3. Does she get eaten? You'll just have to listen next week and find out. All right. Well, until then, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to The Dinner Party Show. Thanks. I've been to a marvelous party.